man, who's that cat coming down the street? I don't know, but it sounds to me like that's whistling man with the bone. Sure having himself a ball. Welcome to the Be Legendary podcast. I'd like to introduce our very special guest, Kevin Wilson. And so, no, I've never done any consulting. Flip used to say to me, I'm not sure if I told you this story, and you tell me when you got to go because I'm just sitting here okay. babbling. Okay. But um, when I was with Hyatt, my boss was Cody Plot. Cody Plot just now recently was the president of Pebble Beach, huge golfer, great hotel guy. But mm-hmm. he, when he went to college in North Carolina, his roommate was Roy Williams. And he said, hey, listen, I know you know some stuff about basketball, but he said, he said I want to fly down. Roy is playing uh, Nebraska, and you want to fly down with me to the game and we'll go to his house and so well, Yeah, that's fine. That's good. We flew down. We get a rental car. went to the game. Well, Nebraska, the assistant coach is Jimmy Williams. And before oh the game, I'm talking with Jimmy, and we're doing a little shooting drill, and I'm doing it with Tyron Lue. He's starting in Nebraska, and I'm working on Tyron Luke. So, so uh, Cody's saying, geez, I didn't know. This. So the game's over, you know, uh, Kansas wins. We go back to Roy's house. He's got about 10 people over, and there's, you know, pizza and beer, and da-da, and then we fly back. We didn't even stay overnight. Flew back to Chicago. Mm-hmm. So now, fast forward, I'm in my office, and my job is to recruit people to build the sales team for Hyatt. I was called director of sales recruitment. So we have 120 hotels. Each hotel has a between seven and 10 salespeople that sell to education groups or to associations or church groups or, you know, dental associations or something. And so I'm stealing them away and recruiting them from Sheraton and Ritz Carlton and Hilton. And, I, and I'm placing them in our hotels. I'm trying to get all the Michael Jordans on my team. But anyhow, Cody's sitting across the desk from me, and the secretary calls in on my phone and says, hey, you have a phone call from Kevin McHale. Do you want me to take a message or hold – and Cody's looking at me like, what? what? what the? And so I said, yeah, go ahead and put it through. And I hit it on speakerphone, and it's McHale and Flip. And um, they say, how you doing, blah, 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 good. And I didn't, and I didn't tell him, you know, that 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 my boss was there. Okay, McHale says, "Hey, we want to give you a call. You recruited me out of Hibbing. You recruited Flip. We're about to sign somebody. Uh, could be a risk. We know you know uh, talent. You got both of us. We didn't want to make a decision without talking to you." And Flip says, which which I still, which Ryan says to this day. Flip says, I will never make a major decision getting married, buying a house, buying a car without talking to you. I may not do what you say, but I will never do it without without talking to you. And Ryan's told me the same thing. So he said, so we thought we'd give you a call and see what you think about this kid from Farragut High School, uh, Kevin Garnett. And I said, okay, well, I got two things for you right off the cuff. 
I hear Flip saying, uh, I'm that. Write this down. Write this down. And the paper's gone. He's, he's, he's getting out a notebook. And he said, okay, go ahead. Go ahead, number one. I said, number one, you guys are two sorry sacks of shit that you got to call a hotel guy to know who to draft for, uh, for your team. And my boss is sitting there with a look on his face. Can't believe it. I said, number two, you won't have enough money to pay this guy what he's going to be deserved. You better start saving up now because he is the real deal and he is that good and you're going to not, not going to be able to pay the guy. And Flip, and they were blown away. And Flip goes, wow. C-Mac, C-Mac, I told you he'd tell it exactly the way that, the way that it was. <laughs> wow. So – so that's that's my consulting, you know, talking to Flip and talking to Ryan. Ryan talks yeah. to me all the time. You know, they're trying to decide right now if they want to pick up J.J. Barrera or not, and they made a mistake mm-hmm. on Malik Beasley, but they've got him, and he's a criminal, and and they brought Rubio back. But, you know, they brought in nine new guys last year. The COVID's going on. George Floyd's getting killed. I mean, poor Ryan, for God's sake, all the stuff he's had going on in his life yeah. for, a, you know, a young coach. Youngest coach ever in the NBA. Wow. It's pretty amazing. Uh, 34 years old. Now, going back to you, when I, in 1971, I was in Minnesota, and this is real big then. They used to have Converse clinics. They were all over Mm -hmm. the place, and high school coaches would pay. And, you know, Johnny Wooten came in one time and talked about his 221 full court press. Well, he forgot to tell people that Kareem was back in the hole or Bill Walton, for God's sake. I mean, these guys had a 6-2 forward back in there. It wasn't going to, you know, so he had different guys. It doesn't always work. But they asked me if I would run the shuttle to the airport and go pick up the coaches. I said, sure, absolutely. Okay, create value. I got a CDL license. I can drive a van. I can drive, you know, these airport shuttle bus things. I go there, and I pick up Adolph Rupp from Kentucky, wearing a brown suit, a white shirt, and a blue tie. And the first thing he said is, are you all still playing in that goddamn barn? Well, he's talking about Williams Arena, which was built in 1927, the same year that Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs. And it's still the same building now. They've changed the seats and stuff. Same elevated floor, same building, same location, blah, blah, blah. But I picked Adolph Rupp's brain, and I, I, you know, I drove him along the river. I could have got back faster on the freeways. I had him for half an hour, and there I just picked his brain to death. All this wow. stuff that he was doing, and of course he's one of the all-time greats. And and uh, and he said nice things about when we got there. And you know I went and got him a, a coke and, and a sandwich, and you know, so you're just creating value that you know you're running around doing stuff. So. Mm. So anyhow, so I could go on and on and on, but but no, well, you know, I like today, I got two. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I got two. I got two questions I want to ask you, and then I'll let you go okay. and make sure this recording's working. Then I'm going to send you the structure tomorrow. But I want I want you to talk about just kind of what we're talking about now, maybe get into more detail. But here's here's the first question: the high from recruiting from a high school to a college, say Division one school. And I know there's other differences, but but how much different is that than recruiting from college to the NBA? 
to, you know, whether it's draft camp or whatever, you know what I mean? Is it, I know there's yeah. differences, but, but are there a lot of similarities too? Well, there are, depend, there are, it depends on the people. Okay. Antonio McDice would ask for help. We'd work on footwork. Ben Wallace was the worst free throw shooter in the NBA, worse than Shaq. And he shot a free throw that was wide left, didn't even get to the rim. It landed in the guy's uh, uh, hands that was lined up on the left-hand side of the lane. The guy shot an air ball short. But the game was over, and the next day I went up to to Ben Wallace, and, and right here's your difference. I said, Ben, in 1970, I was fourth in the nation in free throw percentage, 92.7. Number one was Jamal Wilkes, Keith Wilkes. Oh, my God. And of all that, I was number four. And I still hold the all-time record at Ashland. But I could wow. show you two things. I'm not talking about breathing or doing – I could show you two things right now I guarantee will improve your free-throw shooting because last night you didn't make any. And, you know, I could help you. And he says, Coach, I'm good. Oh, my God. I'm good. No, I'm good. And as I'm walking away, I said, hey, Ben, one last thing. He said, what's that? I said, last night when you were 0 for 8, you made the same number of free throws as a dead man. <laughs> and I just kept on walking oh away. Oh, my God. About a week later, he came back to me and said, okay, what are these two stupid things that you know that you can show me? Well, the guy's hand placement and, and the way the guy was looking. The guy was looking down at the floor, and all of a sudden he's starting his shooting. The guy wasn't even looking at the rim yet. But anyhow – Sometimes in the NBA, when all of a sudden they get a big contract, they know every goddamn thing in the world. You know, Tayshawn Prince didn't want to hear jack shit. Neither, neither did Rip Hamilton. You know, Chauncey was a good guy. It was, it was more towards leading. McDice was a good guy. Um, but, you know, Sheed thought he knew everything. We were going to play against Milwaukee, and they had the big kid, Andrew Bogutz, and they had this one little stupid play where he just – just kind of flash in the broken circle, kind of duck in, you know, they said a little screen, he'd duck in. And we were going to play some zone. And we we're going to have, she was on that side, he was going to deny him and push him away from being about, you know, six feet in front of the hoop. And and she'd, she'd said to Flip, he said, he said, I'm not playing any zone. And he said, I'm not denying the ball. The son oh of a bitch God. can catch the ball and I'm just going to shut him down. You know, I'm doing it my way. And I'm just thinking, oh, shit, here we go. You know, oh here gosh. we go. Well, Bogots came in, got the ball. Not a great talent. You've seen the guy. But he's mm. big and long, and he was kind of rough. And she had a tough time against guys like him and uh, Ilgoskis for Cleveland. You know, those guys gave him a tough time because they're very uh, fundamental. Well, Bogots was chewing him up, man, because he wouldn't wow. stop him getting the ball. He getting the ball five feet in front of the rim. Well, you're screwed, you know. Uh, wow. So that's what those guys don't want to listen. And I shouldn't say those guys. It's not all of them, but a bunch of them. They think they've got it uh, figured out. Uh, what so um, hard. Yeah. Plus, if you're not in sync with your front office, you know, you're trading guys and bringing in guys, and some guys don't fit you, but they want them, or it might be a sale that they're trying to get somebody because it's going to help them sell tickets. You know, you can say this guy was a rookie of the year or 
or this guy's Kevin Garnett. Well, yeah, he's on the downside of his career. Paul Pierce, you know, you're going to bring him in New Jersey, but are they going to be able to perform at that level? So that was always kind of a mm-hmm. screw job. Okay, here's here's the question for you, and yeah. I know you I know you don't like talking about this, but tell me in your opinion or your mind why you were so successful as a as a player and a basketball coach. And it's just a kind of short answer now. Expand on tomorrow, but but do you think your success as a player enabled you to be uh, such a good basketball coach that you were? And the one thing I noticed about you when I first went up there, I knew you yeah. were different. I knew you did things different. You know, you ran you ran it. You know, everything we did before practice started was marketing the program. You know, where right. every other program I was at, that was the farthest thing. They didn't give a shit about that, you know. So, and I know you had to, but, but whether you're a head coach at USF or wherever, you would have done the same thing, in my opinion. And and I'm, I'm right. pretty sure I'm right. So, so you, you did things different like that but also um there's anyway why are we so, in your opinion why are you so good as a basketball coach and well, you know i think question. a couple of things no no well yeah I, I should probably think about it deeper but you know i'm kind of off the cuff this is the first thing that comes into my mind if you go to a fancy country club and i don't know one because i don't belong to one but let's say there's one in la someplace you know bel air country club and and you're eating a Burger King, and there's a wrapper, and there's a, a milkshake thing. When you're done eating them, you know, are you going to throw them down the ground? No. But if you're in some shit little uh, public course, and there's already people in the parking lot throwing shit out of their car and beer cans and stuff, well, then well you don't care. So if you make your place so special, everybody will treat it like it is special. And when you carpet your office and you paint the gym and you get a guy to paint the jump circle and you get a sandwich board outside and you get Adidas shoes and you get gold uniforms, um, you make the thing important. When I got to Minnesota in 1971, I painted all the toilet seats gold and all the the toilets in our locker room. It was all gold. It was big gold country. And we went and found an orange juice company and put an orange juice dispenser machine that goes around and around. I had free orange juice for the guys after practice in there. So you find a way to dress it up and make it big and make it important. And also people want to be part of it. If you're wearing shitty uniforms and you have bad language and bad haircuts and a bad schedule and you travel like a bum and, you know, well, well then that's what you're going to get. You know, there's an old saying you know, if you pay peanuts, you're going to get monkeys. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of the wow. way it is. So I got to state and made it the most important, best program in the conference. I used to call uh, a Hamilton, Bob Hamilton's office, at 6.30 in the morning, and I'd, I'd leave a voicemail message. I want him to know when he got to work, and he played the voicemail message that, Shit, Kevin Wilson's at his desk and he's working on oh, recruiting. I'm sure. Yeah, I remember well, that, that was important. Well, see, I thought I remember. Yeah, well, that was important. Big time. I know. It, it, it it's so funny. We're serious. We're serious, and we're coming after you. We're not bullshitting. You know what I? See, you, you, now for me, I'm I'm not an X and O's guy. 
You know, I never proclaimed myself being next to those guys. But I knew from you, I learned from you exactly what you just said. That that any success I had is exactly what you just said because I learned that from you. It wasn't X and O's. It wasn't it, it, like when I got to West Point, I did exactly what you did at at San Francisco State. I I I had people in the East Coast thinking we were the one of the top prep schools in the country, and we didn't even have a roster yet. But I built a facade, yeah, which yeah. you know, and I learned that all from you. And it's so funny you didn't mention one thing about X's and O's. Or you had the ability to motivate a player. That's what I loved about you, because I got you. You know. Let me tell you this one. You tell me if you've heard this. Have you ever heard about my meeting with the other head coaches and athletic directors at Puget Sound? And Al Matthews, the AD from Hayward, was the chairman of the Western Regional. Did you ever hear about that meeting? No. Okay. Nope. So the head coach, uh, Walt Hazard from Chapman, John Maysai from Riverside, and Don Zeck, who had won 59 games in a row at home, we met with Al Matthews, and there's maybe two athletic directors there. I think the one from Riverside was there, and I think the one from Puget Sound was there. But anyhow, we were seated fourth. I mean, you know that, right? Riverside Mm -hmm. was number one. Puget Sound was two, Chapman was three. They came in second in the CCAA, and we were fourth. And we were in this meeting, and they said, listen, this is a managerial meeting just so we get things all straightened around. Everybody knows where they're supposed to be and what's happening. We want a, a, a good regional game, and, you know, this is, you know, this is our uh, multiple time doing this. But, okay, let's start with this. Let's start with athletic directors. So we make sure they have a place to sit and where they should be relative to the team. We have an area. And 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 they went around and said, okay. And I said, uh, and, and said how about you? I said, well, my after director couldn't come. Parlow didn't make that trip. I said, I, I said, I said, he couldn't come. He said, okay. Well, let's talk about the bands. So we don't want the bands to be in the same area and, and maybe fighting or playing. So we're going to be in the four corners of the gym Okay, so how about you? I said, I said we don't have a pep band. We don't have anybody. Guy said, oh, okay. And then three people talk. They said, okay, let's talk about the radio hookups because we have the electronic guy going to be in here this this time. You know, uh, how many people do you have in your radio? And I said, we don't have any radio. We don't have anybody coming here. And and now Macy and Hazard are kind of chuckling. They're looking at each other and they're slapping the leg under the table and they're kind of laughing. And they said, okay, let's talk about the cheerleaders. So we have, you know, at, at the different ends of the floor and so forth. And I, said, and, and I said, we don't have any cheerleaders. I said, we don't have any on the, at the school. We don't have any for the home games either. I, you know, I said, we don't have any cheerleaders here. They go, okay. They said, okay, let's talk about uniform color. Which team is home? Which team's away? So, you know, we don't have two teams coming out wearing white or something. Let's, let's talk about that. I stand up now because they're all giggling and laughing at me like I'm, you know, some jerk. I stand up and say, guys, listen to me. I said, we only have one color uniform, gold. You guys can wear white. You can wear blue. You can wear pink. I don't give a shit what you guys wear. We're uh, we're wearing gold. That's all we have. That's what we're wearing. We're wearing them tonight. We're wearing them tomorrow night. And and Al says, really? And I said, yeah. He said, anything else? I said, yeah. I said, we're coming to kick your ass. 
I walked out of that. <laughs> oh my God. Thing. I oh swear my God. to God. And John Macy told me later on that he was absolutely shocked. Couldn't believe it. We beat them going away like a drum. And then we played, we played Puget Sound, of course. And you know how that, that thing turned out. Yeah. When I inducted Patrick Sandal into the hall of fame, I, this was back at state. I didn't know what the year was. I don't know, 10 years, 15 years ago, whatever it was. Pat was there. I um, took the plaque, held it against my chest. The other guys, uh, the uh, baseball guy, Orrin Freeman, those guys all talked at the podium. I walked around throughout the tables the whole talk, just kept on going back and forth. back And, forth. and there's probably 150 people in this room uh, over there. And I, and I said, I want to take you back. I want to take you back to 1984. And I said, this was a popular music. This is what the cars were like, so forth. But I said, I want to tell, tell you about a, a game that's emblazoned on my brain, and I'll never forget it until I die. We're playing Puget Sound, who's won 59 games in a row at their place, and they have two guys that are six foot nine. We don't, don't, we don't have anybody that's even close, and even our tallest guy weighed about 150 pounds. He's got as skinny as a rail. But I remember this play, and this is why we're here. Right, we were facing the court. We were on the left bench. Scorer's table was to our right, and then their bench was down the next one. And right in front of me, their guy, they got the jump ball, passed it around, and right in front of me with a direct line to the hoop, a guy takes a jump shot. And I'm right dead behind the guy. I can see the flight of the ball, the whole thing. And the ball hits the rim short, skips across the rim and goes to the right corner you know, all the way over the right corner high and the next thing i see patrick sandal gets the ball with one hand he gets it with one hand takes one dribble and tony welch took off right in front of our bench going down the other end and patrick throws a touchdown pass that tony catches in the air and lays it up no dribble, never came down the ground, two nothing Gators. And I said, I turn, I think it was Pat, but I said, I turn to the guy next to me and I said, game's over. He said, what are you talking about? Wow. I said, game's over. We put them back on their heels and, and uh, showed them the way the guys play in the city. And, <laughs> and that's what I told in the locker room. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. Now, do you remember our locker room down below their Quonset hut type thing? And we were down in there yeah. and they were stopping their feet and cheering. Yep, I do. Do you, do you by any chance remember the story I told about the Western town? I don't think that you would probably remember no. this. No. Keith Hazel and Jeff Oda have told me that this is one of the most monumental things they've ever had happen to them. But but every time we when we played Chico those two games and we played Sacramento before that we always wrote down you know we're going to do this and do that and this was the best shooter and this guy could do this and it was like a scouting report on the board. But we had, as you recall, at Chico, the first game we played a triangle and two, and Pat mm-hmm. and Andre sh- shut down their guards. I want to say it was like Tim Thomas or Timmy something, and then there was a black kid. I forget that, that kid's name. But, you know, our guards outplayed their guards, and they were co-MVPs of the league. Um, but we played triangle and two. 
And then the next game, I knew that Pete was going to try to attack the triangle two by putting two guys at the elbow, you know, one at each elbow. And we had Keith in the middle, and we had Tony and Everett back on the baseline. And we were playing a, a, a triangle and two. Well, I knew they were going to do something, so I changed the triangle. I put uh, Tony and Keith at the two elbows and Everett back, and they come out and they line up right next to us. They, they didn't realize instead of having you know one guy and then two down low, we had two at the foul line and one guy down low. And that was a, a, big, a big start. And so anyhow, Keith said that they kind of learned that you know, we had tricks up our sleeve. We had you know, one, three, one, half court trap, and we're going to do this and that. But anyhow, I told them a story. And they, they still remember this, and you may somewhere down the road, but I want you to know this story in case I have a heart attack tomorrow. You'll at least know <laughs> that you got this thing out. But I told them I didn't have anything on the board. I didn't have any names up on the board. Uh, this was the next day at the Riverside, and we just had a big win. But I told them, I said, listen, I'm going to tell you. Oh, and Keith said, Coach, what are we going to do tonight? What's the keys? What's the, what's the strategy? What do you have? going up your sleeve tonight and the guys were just coming out of the bathroom and they were fixing their hair and doing stuff but there was like you know seven guys all sitting there and they were all nervous the style sound was going on and what when Keith said this and they all kind of heard it, i said well listen i'm going to tell you something i'm going to tell you a story and he said what's that i said okay long time ago in this town of tacoma there were wooden sidewalks and people riding a horse and buggies and all that kind of shit small little town and there was a doctor in this town, and the doctor took care of everybody. He was the only doctor. If they had a cold, they had a broken uh, leg, they had a sore shoulder, they came to see this guy, and this guy was really wealthy. This guy was the only one. But after a while, the guy's business started to wane. People weren't coming in anymore. And he looked outside, and people were walking up and down this big hill, a big high grass with rocks and boulders, and they, They've been uh, wearing a path. So he goes outside and he grabs a guy and says, what the hell's going on out here? He says, oh, there's a medicine man up at the top of the hill. He's the smartest guy in the world, and he's he's taking care of us. And the guy says, well, that, well that's bullshit. You know, that's not going to happen. So he got the whole town in a big fervor you know, all around him in a mob scene and said, come on, let's go. And they followed him, and he's, he's walking through these boulders and through this high uh, uh, brown grass. So he gets up, you know, up uh, to kind of a crest almost all the way there, just a little bit past halfway. And all of a sudden in the trail, there's a dove. There's a bird there, and he must be kind of hurt or something. I don't know, but the guy picks it up and walks the rest of the way up there. And when he gets to the top of the hill, he sees a medicine man sitting on a rock a big boulder rock and all the townspeople come in on the left and on the right and completely surround that clearing and that rock. But the doctor has the dove behind his back. And he says to the, he says, the medicine man, he says, medicine man, you're supposed to be so goddamn smart. I've got a bird behind my back. Is it dead or alive? And he knew that if the guy said the bird's dead, he was going to release it, and the bird was going to fly away. He also knew if he said the bird's alive, he was going to reach back there with, with both hands and snap the bird's neck and then expose its lifeless form. And, and all the people, 
there's 120, 140 people all around. I'm telling the story, and I swear to God, I can still see our players' faces looking at me. They're either uh, they're either listening to exactly what it is, or they think I'm crazier than hell, <laughs> and they don't know what this guy what this guy's doing. But but the doctor says, "Come on, medicine man. You're you're so smart. Is this bird dead or alive?" And the medicine man looked at every single person turned all the way around. And I did that to every single guy in, in that room. I, I pointed and looked at everybody's faces. And I said, and the medicine man turned back to the doctor and he said, is it the answers in your hands? <laughs> wow. And I saw, and I saw Sandal, I saw Sandal <laughs> and Hazel. I said, let's go. We didn't have to do anything else. We went out there and, played a hell of a game. I mean, Don Zeck told me that was the toughest team they'd ever seen come into that place. They'd won 59 in a row. Three years. Wow. They didn't lose a game there for three years. 